0: To China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SubChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success, and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy This is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Marcos, a professor at Cornell's Business School. Welcome to this live SubChina CEO webinar of the China Corner Office podcast, a show focused on the leaders and companies facing challenges and opportunities of doing business in China. Today, we're kicking off a new partnership with the USCBC, the US-China Business Council, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, organization representing over 200 American companies doing business with China. We'll have regular webinars and podcasts, particularly focused on the intersection between business and policy and how commercial relations will be reshaped under the Biden administration. To discuss these issues today, we have two leading thinkers on US-China relations, particularly in the commercial sphere. We have Craig Allen, who is president of the USCBC. Uh, Craig has a long and distinguished career in the US public service, serving many positions in Beijing, Taipei, Tokyo. Uh, he's also the former ambassador to Brunei and has served as deputy assistant secretary for China in the US Commerce Department. Also, we have Robert Daly, who is the director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. You know, Robert's work on China is really amazingly diverse. He was the star of a movie, well-known movie in the 1990s called *Beijing Renzi Nuyue*, which uh, *Beijinger in New York*. He's led a number of university program China programs uh, and also served as an interpreter for many world leaders, including Jiang Zemin, Jimmy Carter, and Henry Kissinger. Craig and Robert, welcome to China Corner office.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Great, so. First, just sort of a set for our audience, setting sort of some of the some of the ground rules. So, you know, please enter your questions in the Q and A feature, and we can get to those throughout the t- throughout the discussion as well as probably at the end. I'm going to start with a number of questions, but please be entering your Q and A as we go. Uh, so, the first question I'd like to to pose to both of you, and, and Robert, maybe you can get a, get us started. Uh, is in regard to communication between the two countries. You know, last week we had a phone call between President Xi and President Biden, you know, but looking at the reporting on that and the report out readouts, you know, very different messaging. You know, the U.S., uh, I'll read a quote here, described it, you know, the discussion focusing on Beijing's coercive and unfair economic practices, crackdown in Hong Kong, human rights abuses in Xinjiang, and increasingly assertive actions uh, in the region, including Taiwan. And from the China side, it was a little more positive, suggesting there's room to work together, although my guess is none of those issues uh, are things where where there's room to work. Uh, You know, I'm curious, you know, how do you make sense of this? You know, with such dramatically different messaging, you know, where can the
1: US and China work together? Sure, well, those readouts, the formal readouts from the State Department, from the Chinese government, are primarily for domestic consumption. And this is why the US uh, message emphasizes Biden's toughness and his raising of the difficult issues. Right. And that Xi Jinping announcement focuses on his projected sort of very sunny view that you hear at Davos and other places that we have a community of common destiny and that we can get together. But the entire conversation, the substantive part of a two hour conversation in this case lasted about an hour and a half. And so they actually covered many, many different aspects of the relationship. They they talked about their domestic plans for their own domestic economies, and they explored some areas for cooperation as well. So Mm -hmm. the substance was far richer than what was reported. And of course, both leaders know that. Now, at the same time, China's very aware that while it was glad to get this message from Biden on the eve of Chinese New Year, and places like the Global Times played this up as a very friendly signal from the United States, earlier that afternoon, Uh, President Biden had been at the Department of Defense where he announced that Eli Ratner would be leading a fast-track review of our military capabilities, our our posture toward China. So that the correspondence of those two uh, events can't have been missed. I have been told that uh, while President Biden gave a fairly complete readout of his domestic and international plans to Xi Jinping, including talking about Hong Kong, and Xinjiang, that the Chinese response was pretty formulaic. It was very much uh, like the Yang Jiechi speech earlier in the week. There was a sense that uh, it was on the United States to get uh, back with the proper program, to realize that there's nothing threatening about China's rise. And then lastly, uh, Xi Jinping came back to his prescription of no conflict, no confrontation, mutual respect, and win-win. Now, what's striking about that is that was exactly the formula for the new model of major power relations that China put out and that America pretty clearly rejected back in 2013. Not that there's anything wrong with any one piece of that. Nobody would, you know, wants confrontation. But the Chinese side is saying, on the one hand, that everything has changed over the past four years. And yet we have the same formula, no, no new ideas yet. Uh, that said, it's early days. And this is largely about signaling at this stage. Yeah, it
0: makes a lot of sense. I think signaling to domestic uh, versus, versus uh, the international competitors. Craig, do you have anything to add to that?
2: I, I would just add uh, that uh, preceding uh, the two presidents' uh, discussion, there was an earlier discussion by the Secretary of State and uh, Yang Jiechi. And that was really, in a sense, uh, setting the structure and the uh-huh. format for the latter discussion. And that was very important uh, because it set the foundation on a number of, uh, of structural issues. Uh, the U.S. acceptance uh, of the one-China policy, uh, the fact that we were going to compete as well as to cooperate, and setting some, some really strong guidelines there uh, for both leaders to, um, to respect Uh, the other's red lines, Mm -hmm. so that we can move forward uh, to a more collaborative uh, uh, agenda, uh, possibly in the future, uh, at least insofar as we're dealing with uh, common global challenges. Uh, So uh, I think that the two leaders uh, put us in a good spot uh, to move the relationship forward on a much more uh, firm foundation.
0: Great. Let's talk about some of those areas of potentially uh, moving forward uh, on
2: on the firm foundation.
0: You know, one of the reasons we're getting together is, you know, recently the USCBC and the Wilson Center, you know, had an event, and I think actually a sort of report out as well on the topic of bridging economic and national security interests. And I think, you know, over the past four years, these have been maybe conjoined in a, a you know a little bit more deeper way than they will be uh, in the future. And I'm curious you if just some some of the insights from from those discussions and maybe where some of the areas where there might be change uh, for the US and China to be working together uh, more collaboratively, more constructively. Maybe Craig, you can start on this one.
2: Okay, Um, so uh, bridging our national security and our economic interests is a a real big challenge. Because uh, the national security side and the economic side um, uh, have been going in opposite directions uh, uh, recently. Um, And the national security debate uh, has uh, uh, overwhelmed, uh, to a certain extent, the economic debate. Um, And uh, it's useful to recalibrate uh, and to take a uh, look at how we can achieve both our national security objectives without compromising on our economic objectives. Uh, Both are very, very uh, important. I think that um, the incoming Biden administration uh, has uh, articulated very well that the economic interests, and that is uh, jobs for American working families, is uh, of paramount concern. And um, it is, uh, I I I think a well understood uh, truth that uh, many jobs were lost uh, in the United States in uh, the recent uh, trade uh, dispute. Our research uh, suggests that up to 250,000 jobs uh, were lost as a result of uh, the uh, tariffs uh, and the economic conflict. Uh, without necessarily furthering our national security um, uh, interests. And so bridging the interests and satisfying both our national security and our economic interests uh, is is an important task and one uh, that we can do uh, if we uh, recalibrate. And the conference uh, was looking at uh, the various elements of that uh, from – Uh, geopolitics uh, to cybersecurity, to Congress, uh, to global warming and Mm. and climate uh, and uh, technology uh, policies as well. And so um, all of these areas are contested, all are important areas of policy debate. And I'm confident uh, that the speakers at the conference all contributed um, Practical suggestions in moving forward uh, to advance our economic interests uh, without sacrificing any of the national security concerns that we may have.
0: Great. Any examples of maybe things that
2: might change
0: to as as sort of maybe the economic and national security are, are separated a bit? You know, there's a variety of things in the news from you know TikTok and WeChat to, you know, a listing of Chinese firms to you know, you know, other actions against other companies. Is there, you know, any sense of things that might be changing in the near future? Or recommendations of things that potentially could change.
2: I think that uh, the relatively confrontational approach uh, of uh, the Trump administration um, satisfied neither our uh, national security uh, or our economic concerns, and so I think a change of tone here. Uh, and uh, a civil conversation between uh, both the secretaries, uh, foreign ministers, if you will, uh, and the presidents is a great great start. Uh, This need not be uh, confrontational. Um, So that is uh, one area. Now, the uh, Biden uh, economic team is uh, coming into office. And it's so it's too early to judge uh, as to uh, where they will come down on uh, the many issues uh, that uh, remain uh, from Mm -hmm. the Trump administration, including uh, many executive orders uh, that uh, constrained uh, Chinese companies uh, in America. And I'm certainly uh, not going to uh, uh, prejudge that. Um, uh, The... um, All of government approach uh, towards China uh, will no doubt uh, continue. Competition towards China uh, will no doubt continue, Uh, but the framing of that uh, competition in in more confrontational tone uh, will hopefully be toned down, uh, allowing the space uh, for pragmatic uh, collaboration uh, with uh, China uh, in climate change, uh, COVID, uh, anti-terrorism, anti-narcotics, Uh, and many other areas where we have uh, a a common concern. Uh, So the change of tone is important. Um, There probably will not be a dramatic shift in uh, either competition on the technology side or the diplomatic side, uh, perhaps even the ideological side. Uh, But that competition um, could be a lot more uh, creative uh, and and less confrontational. And I think that uh, that is an important change. Great. Thank you. Another Trump.
1: difference that we see, if we look at the administration's statements about how it wants to handle questions related to TikTok and WeChat in the short term, for example, is the Biden administration has said that it wants to look at the merits of these claims under law. And that's a big shift from treating these companies based on imaginable worst case scenarios, which seem to be the case Previously, As far as we can tell from the public statements of the administration, they'll be looking at these cases primarily, or or at least initially, through a legal lens rather than simply through a national security lens. Another thing that struck me during our our conference and since is that we speak of bridging security and economic concerns as though these two are parallel. Mm -hmm. But there are many important senses in which they're not parallel at all. Uh, one of which, and I think this makes a big difference for the Biden administration, is that we understand our economic concerns vis-a-vis China fairly well. There are decisions to be made, but you can define what those interests are and why they're interests. Our security interests remain to be defined. And this to me is one of the great challenges for the Biden administration. What is the China challenge or the China threat, uh, if you like, specifically? Under the Trump administration, security sort of ruled all and worst case scenarios, the worst things that we could imagine were assumed to be operative on the parts of the Chinese. If corporations, if universities, if NGOs, if the many Americans who work with China are going to be able to work with China in our national interests, knowing there's a competition, we need better guidance. And that includes real specificity about the nature of the challenge from China, the duration, the stakes, what it's likely to cost. And these are the big strategic uh, questions that I've hoped to have answered by the Biden administration as clearly as possible. You don't get perfect clarity. This is a very dynamic situation. Uh, fairly early on, because we, we, we can't speak of security and economic interests unless we define the security interests. And that's never really been done uh, since we entered into this new era of competition.
2: Chris, let me add uh, the multilateral sure. element here as well. Um, I think... Um, uh, the trade community was very pleased uh, that the US agreed to the uh, appointment of a new WTO Director General Ngozi. The world is relieved uh, that the United States has uh, uh, rejoined uh, the WHO and indeed paid up uh, dues and, uh, uh, and working member uh, in good standing of the World Health Organization to address COVID uh, challenges. Um, so the multilateral arena is going to help to shape uh, our competition and our cooperation with China going forward, and that's a very good thing uh, to uh, for both countries to constrain themselves uh, to uh, those multilateral institutions pursuing uh, uh, global goods. Uh, puts us uh, changes the the, the fabric uh, of the debate and puts it in a a much more uh, constructive uh, form uh, in my view. And also it allows us to implement policies uh, once uh, decided. Um, The unilateral uh, mano a mano approach uh, is only so useful. Uh, Much better uh, for us uh, to uh, compete in arenas where we can win, uh, including uh, the multilateral arena uh where we have uh, great strengths and uh where we're going to see a new and renewed emphasis uh in terms of the u.s china relationship thank you
0: yeah no thanks i mean i think yeah definitely the multilateral aspect is a strength of the us vis-a-vis you know its position in china so it makes sense to you know focus much more there as opposed to being unilateral and i'd like to actually you know though still sort of think within the us going back a little bit to what robert was saying about you know, what actually is the China challenge uh, and sort of a need for it not to be necessarily just like an existential threat, like some, you know, folks, um, you know, have said, uh, but get more guidance, uh, you know, into the nature of it. And, you know, one of the questions that have come in, you know, relates, I think a little bit to, you know, you mentioned WeChat and TikTok uh, regarding, you know, sort of privacy of information, you know, uh, sort of security of data, And, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how to think about that, because there's a variety of different ways, you know, the the individual, the questioner asks about, you know, things like medical data, you know, military and aerospace data. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of nuance in thinking about, you know, data as a resource and particularly vis-a-vis things like WeChat and TikTok bans. I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts uh, on that, maybe... Uh, I'm not sure who the best to start off with that is. Craig, do you want to start? Yeah, let
2: me, let me start out. One of the proposals raised during our recent conference, um, which I heartily subscribe to, is that uh, a new science and technology and data office should be erected within the White House uh, to uh, coordinate. Uh, both uh, US government policy on on those subjects, as well as to coordinate with our allies, and then uh, on the basis of that, uh, negotiate with uh, the Chinese. Um, And I think that that's a very solid uh, uh, proposal uh, coming out of uh, the conference. Um, There are many elements uh, of this, and uh, we could talk about export controls, uh, investment licensing, uh, uh, or investment approvals uh, d- and uh, data. And all of them are important. They are three different kind of branches of uh, uh, governance or, or, or regulation. Um, and all of them uh, need a stra- strategic framework and uh, a coordinated uh, approach rather than each of uh, the Department of Commerce worrying about export controls, uh, Department of State worrying about clean channels uh, and um, uh, uh, other fragmentation within the government, uh, multiple agencies working on all of them. Um, So this is an area uh, uh, where contestation between the United States and China will probably remain, and uh, where the United States could do a better job at uh, coordinating uh, among uh, various uh, interests. Um, China uh, has uh, surged in its ability to innovate across uh, multiple uh, different industries. Uh, China has a quarter of the total STEM workers in the world and graduates approximately three times as many STEM workers as the United States on an annual basis. Further, they have a plan uh, to uh, excel in many industries of the future. Um, And so uh, I think it behooves us uh, to work, uh, to coordinate uh, on this issue internally, to work closely with our allies and then to negotiate uh, with the Chinese uh, to ensure that they meet their commitments under the WTO or um, or other multilateral fora. I would note uh, that uh, recently the uh, MOFCOM or the Ministry of Commerce of China has put the CPTPP agreement on its website. Now that is a very interesting uh, development Um, it is indicative uh, to the provinces and to the uh, municipalities around China and state-owned enterprises that they should study this document and begin to prepare to implement it. Now, the CPTPP has very good uh, uh, innovation-related disciplines within it. And uh, I think that this opens the door for potentially some uh, useful discussion uh, with the Chinese uh, along with CPTPP partners. Uh, and of course, um, the Europeans have uh, proposed a trade and technology transatlantic council, another very interesting idea, which in my view should be pursued. Did you, did you have
0: anything on top of that,
2: Robert?
1: I would just add, uh, I thought that one of the biggest takeaways coming out of our conference uh, was that we had, I think on fairly good authority, Uh, reports from people who know the Hill very well from both sides of the aisle uh, that there is zero chance of rejoining CPTPP under any circumstances, that there is simply no appetite for that. And one of the things that we, and we discussed it at at some length, this one's uh, a dead letter. And obviously a number of us connected to the conference were hoping uh, that that might be something that could be done during this administration, but we were told that, that Congress is in no mood.
0: Interesting. Returning a little bit to what Craig was saying around these different, sort of multilateral frameworks, you know, with you know on technology with Europe, you know, I'm curious. You know, you mentioned the WTO. You know, some of the proposals, you know, made in China 20, you know, 2025, you know, have been critiqued for potentially being, you know, in violation of of the WTO. And I'm curious. You know, they've reformulated that in these strategic industries. Uh, you know, big focus on, you know, things like AI, machine learning, uh, etc. You know, what's your sense of, you know, what the US can do as far as, you know, its own, you know, not necessarily industrial policy, but as far as, you know, sh- you know, sh- shaping industry in a way that it can can be competitive against China that is investing so much in a very centralized way in these, uh, these technologies?
2: I think uh, uh, there is no doubting uh, China's uh, commitment uh, to advancing its science and technology establishment and um, uh, molding its society uh, in accordance uh, to new technologies. Uh, And uh, they have the money and the technology and the people uh, and the will uh, uh, to do so. And That uh, does create indeed uh, a very I- interesting set of challenges uh, for the United States, uh, for Europe and indeed uh, the rest of the world. On the US side, um, I uh, think that we have uh, great traditional strengths um, that uh, are the gift that have uh, kept giving for the last 150 or 250 years, and will probably give for the next 250 years. And that is the diversity and the strength and openness uh, and academic disciplines of our, of, of our great universities uh, and our uh, innovative um, uh, structures. Uh, the United States uh, was uh, born on an idea uh, and that is a free, I- free markets in, in um, ideas, religion, Um, uh, goods, uh, products, uh, uh, free markets in uh, as much as we can. And that has uh, delivered uh, beautifully uh, for our country and will continue to do so. Um, That said, um, the uh, government uh, has withdrawn uh, from funding uh, R&D and uh, could certainly uh, increase um, uh, our, the government's contribution to R&D at least to the percentages that we had enjoyed uh, uh, mm-hmm. in the post-war era. I think uh, also critically keeping our universities and um, uh, laboratories as well as corporations uh, open uh, for collaboration around the world is critical. Uh, Chinese companies, R and D companies, high tech companies. When you go in, you only hear Mandarin. There are very few other languages spoken. In American uh, uh, high tech companies, it's a uh, just a United Nations, uh, mm-hmm. just a cornucopia of languages and cultures, right. and that is uh, our strength and something that we should uh, double down on. Let me ask so a I'm... follow up to that. Go, go ahead. Do you have something to? Well, I don't.
1: I don't want to pour a cold bucket of water on what Craig said, all of which I agree with. You know, diversity, innovation, creativity, political, cultural, pluralism, you know, long may they reign. Uh, But China's got two great tricks, speed and scale. Uh, And we haven't, our innovation, our, our sort of suite of strengths that Craig has described, have never had to deal with that before. And this has implications in almost every aspect Uh, of Biden's project of national restoration, including you asked about prospects for something more like an industrial policy in the United States, at least in certain sectors. And Senator Rubio and and others have called for this. And this would, of course, be a sea change. Uh, If it's desirable, if it's doable, uh, it's going to be on a fairly slow boat. And this is, again, where China's speed and scale uh, keep coming into play. And I've been wondering in sort of my Sort of dark nights of the soul, more pessimistic modes. If America's great virtues that Craig just described, you know, were they uh, historically construed or historically uh, better suited to one era than another? When we have a wealthy, large, fast China, can if we were to go to industrial policy, say the case of rare earths or biopharmaceuticals, right. uh, could we do it um, in a time horizon uh, that made any sense? And so one of the things. In relation to this that that concerns me, and we're talking about the Biden administration's approach to China, is that very understandably Biden has said he wants to focus on national restoration first. No free trade agreements uh, until we've rebuilt our infrastructure and workers are more competitive. We need to get our own house in order. And I, I certainly agree with that, except that our house is never in order. And China's on the move, uh, and so we, we can't slow walk this thing while China's speeding up. We've got to walk on both legs, whether it's in the area of industrial policy or goosing rare earths processing, whatever it may be. So I, again, I wholly, deeply agree with Craig about our strengths. I just worry that, that they've never faced a test like this before, and we may need to add some strengths to that list. So, again, not, 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 not yeah, too...
0: Uh, no but that's a very interesting sort of you know theory and sounds very plausible and even you know I'd love to follow up with you Robert also but to think more about some of the strengths that Craig had mentioned you know, these things in our universities and, and companies, the just vast diversity, which I think over the last four years has been a little bit on the decline with some of the immigration policies and limiting of visas. Uh, you know, and what's your sense about how that will change uh, and, and or should change to try to, you know, conti- continue to, you know, really build on some of the diversity that has traditionally been the strength of U.S.
1: innovation and U.S. Robert? business more generally.
2: Robert? Robert. Sure.
1: Well, I think here the Biden administration will benefit from a lot of the work that began under the Trump administration, not work done so much by the Trump administration, but launched, for example, like by the NDAA, which set up commissions at the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine and within OSTP, the uh, White House uh, Science Advisor, looking at various academic subdisciplines to ask specific questions about how sensitive they were, in fact, and at what levels with an eye toward maximizing the openness of universities, the internationalization of universities, including their openness to Chinese scholars you know, from whose work we've benefited immeasurably in every discipline for over 40 years. This has been repeatedly understated uh, over the past five years, uh, but that doesn't mean there are no threats. So those commissions, their work is ongoing, uh, and I think we will be seeing some of the results of that Soon, and they're trying to take what they've called, I think it was a, originally a Secretary Gates's phrase of small yards, high fences, describe the truly sensitive areas as narrowly as possible and then make them as secure as possible while honoring openness. Uh, there are also other ongoing uh, legislative efforts, uh, including some major legislation now being drafted on the Hill, which is also aimed at protecting our innovation system while recognizing that its greatest strength has been openness and internationalization. So I think that with a lot of rough spots over the past four years, and again, with an over-securitization of these questions about the academy, I think we ended up getting the questions about right and the dispositions about right. So now we're waiting for some of that, uh, those research findings to come out as a guide to policy. So it's not the year zero for Biden on this stuff. Uh, there has been excellent ongoing work from the academy, uh, from industry that he'll be able to draw That's
0: that's great to hear. Relatively optimistic. Craig, did you have anything to add on the sort of university and human capital flow point?
2: Yeah, I would uh, only add uh, that every university uh, is uh, has its own procedures and processes, and many have tightened up uh, over the last uh, year and a half, two years or so, and that's a very uh, that's that's a very good thing to see. Uh, Procedures con- concerning uh, conflict of interest, uh, for example, may not have been clear as they should have been. Uh, processes of reporting uh, income from foreign laboratories, for example, might not have been required in the past. Uh, all, all of that transparency is a very good thing. Uh, the more transparency, uh, the better, and the more collaboration in that transparent framework uh, is, is welcome. Um, but uh, a conflict of interest and moral hazard and 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 uh, thousand talents type uh, of activities that are unclear uh, to the American host university that type of um, activity uh, should be uh, curtailed.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think then there needs to be a big, uh, you know, differentiation between espionage and, and fraud in some way, which I think sometimes in the media, maybe some of the investigations that sort of presented in a little bit, you know, not clear, actually, with what, what the actual underlying issue is I know as an academic with some experience in China, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's surprising to me that some of these transparency issues, because at least the universities I've been at are very Conscientious and asking faculty multiple times a year about what their outside activities are. You know, are they earning any income? Is there, you know, any connection to any, you know, any universities in China? So it's sort of interesting to me that you know there there continues to be this transparency issue. But but I, I agree that it should be actually emphasized uh, a bit more. The uh, one question we have uh, that came in sort of as a follow up to to this discussion, and particularly you know around the sort of small yard, high fences idea of sort of, you know, relatively narrowly defining an interest area and then creating large barriers, is uh, any sort of specific examples in maybe even biology or medicine or high-tech uh, to sort of give listeners a good sense of, you know, actually what
1: that, what that could mean? I don't think we'll know until we get the research products. Uh, of course, all of the universities that have been doing classified work, they, they've, they've won grants, uh, to conduct classified work. Those laboratories have never been open to foreign scholars. And so thats not that shouldn't be uh, a major issue. I do know that they're looking, uh, say, at sub-disciplines. They're not going to say something like aeronautics and astronautics. It will be sub-disciplines that have specific applications, say, to hypersonic glide reentry entry vehicles, that, that sort of thing. That's the narrow gauge approach uh, that they're going to be taking. But I don't think we'll know um, and I don't think there's that much in point in, in speculating right now as, as to how they're going to carve that up. But it will not just be directed toward China. It will be designated countries of high security concern. So this will be Russia, Iran, of course, uh, North Korea, Cuba, China, uh, maybe a handful of others. And it will not be a ban of all scholars. It will be a ban on scholars in sub at certain levels, whether that's postdoctoral or whatever it is, it's certainly not at the undergraduate level and probably not at the master's level. So I think on this one, we really just need to wait and see.
2: One interesting development is that the Department of Commerce uh, is trying to define uh, emerging technologies and foundational technologies uh, so as to be able to bring them under export controls uh, if uh, necessary. And I was uh, very... uh, pleased uh, to see that they are uh, working with our European uh, uh, friends and allies and colleagues uh, on this, or at least consulting uh, with them. Uh, because I think that, that uh, a, the unilateral American approach is only going to be uh, so effective Uh, And uh, really uh, the United States has certainly no monopoly on any of uh, these emerging technologies. And uh, at least in my view, collaboration uh, uh, transatlantic is a useful uh, paradigm uh, going forward, uh, both to advance uh, our own uh, R&D agenda, uh, but also as a way uh, to uh, address uh, some of the excesses uh, within uh, China's R&D establishment, and uh, at least indirectly uh, um, uh, encourage uh, 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 the Chinese R&D establishment to recognize the problems that it has with uh, fraud and abuse and patent uh, uh, problems and uh, other types of um, uh, uh, problems that that um, are common uh, in China, so transatlantic collaboration here, uh, at least in my view, is very positive. One other,
1: uh, perhaps positive note for some of your listeners uh, on these issues uh, is that our new uh, DNI, Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, uh, throughout most of 2020, this is not a secret, was leading a, a project at the uh, Weatherhead Institute. Uh, at Columbia, it was a combined project with the uh, Johns Hopkins National Physics Lab, looking at these issues of uh, you know, research integrity and defending the innovation system, and sponsored a number of papers for, by American academics that took a really granular look. A lot of the accusations that we've heard about Chinese scholars uh, over the past three or four years, they've been, uh, I wouldn't say they're exactly evidence-free zones, but one would have wished right. for a little bit more specificity. And So she, she did this and ran this, I thought, very, very good project. I wanted to recommend uh, one of the scholars who's at Yale on this, uh, a guy named Remco Zwetsu, who really got the data on how many Chinese are here, what disciplines they're in, uh, whether they are replaceable or not. And the whole project came down on the, very much on the side of, we need openness and internationalization, and we need these Chinese students. And the person who ran that project is now sitting at at DNI, and so she's well-versed in all of these issues, as are many of her colleagues who have gone into the Biden administration. They've been on this one for three or four years, and I think basically with the right dispositions. I'm fairly optimistic.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, from the university standpoint where I sit, I mean, this, you know, having more sort of, you know, granular look at things is, is so, so well needed. I know I teach at a business school and there's so many blanket, which really has very little, I think, national security concerns, you know, not high tech focus or sort of sensitive research area. But still, you know, many sort of there's blanket uh, restrictions where, you know, I can't even talk to some folks from various universities that are on sort of the seven universities list where I have sort of friends friends and colleagues. So it's, I, I, you know, I definitely think this is a step in the right direction. Uh, one of the questions that come in sort of looks at this from the opposite perspective, and I think it's a really important one, you know, given both of your background to think about, you know, it's from the U.S., understanding of China and new, you know, new China scholars, new people interested in working in and understanding China. You know, I've seen, I teach a class on doing business in China, you know, much less interest in this recently. I think on sub-China, maybe a month or two ago, there was an article about, you know, there was, you know, sort of retreat of folks studying China and and China hands, so to speak. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about how we can keep open the dialogue in that direction, too, and really continue to foster expertise on China within the United States.
2: Craig, why don't Robert? you go first? Yeah. Um, so there is no doubt that we need a lot more China expertise in the United States. Um, and uh, let me um, approach this from, a, if you will, a diplomatic perspective. Um, I, I think that um, throughout uh, the Foreign Service uh, and the diplomatic corps, that there is an urgent need for China e- expertise. Um, and uh, few, far too few people who speak uh, fluent uh, Mandarin, uh, much less other dialects uh, within the Foreign Service. And uh, unfortunately, it's become more difficult uh, for Chinese speakers, particularly those who have spent time uh, in China uh, to pass the uh, security clearances uh, within, to, to enter the Foreign Service. Um, to serve at an embassy, one needs a top secret clearance and uh, that's not easy to get. Um, so uh, I am hopeful uh, that, uh, that the Foreign Service and the US government uh, and those um, uh, institutions that do require a security clearance, uh, will um, uh, we'll welcome those who have actually spent time in China. Uh, otherwise, we might find ourselves in the contradictory situation of uh, needing that China expertise, but uh, having regulations that won't allow us to hire uh, our own people who, who, who do have that. So at least in my view, um, uh, it uh, would be useful uh, to take another look at uh, those uh, regulations uh, and higher up, uh, uh, particularly within the foreign service, uh, which has uh, lost a lot of expertise o- over the last four years.
1: And, and in addition uh, to what Craig just said, and I, I agree strongly. You know, the young Americans who spent a lot, many years in China, doing many things. You know, making friends. Sometimes, you know, marrying people. Uh, they, they're, they're precisely the folks we need and they can't get into a lot of these agencies. Uh, but there's, a, there's another piece, it's actually even worse than Craig says. We have a really huge reservoir of Chinese speakers. They're Chinese American. Right. They're Chinese American. They're the, you know, that's where the expertise is now. Linguistic, you know, bicultural, uh, professional expertise. And they too, if they come into government uh, face a lot of restrictions for serving in China in many cases. And that's another piece together with what Craig just mentioned that we really have to look at because of course that's where the expertise resides uh, and we keep much of it on the other side of the door.
0: Great, uh, we had a question come in but I think sort of also relates to this sort of really, you know, bridging understanding you know, in, you know, in economic ways as well uh, in its regard to CFIUS, you know, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States uh, you know, how effective is it now in protecting U.S. national security and interests? You know, on the one hand, the questioner asks, you know, it's, it could be a boon because it encourages people to people interaction, job creation. But then conversely, you know, it could be, you know, a curse with China, you know, stealing business secrets and, and espionage, et cetera. So I'm curious what your sense is. And maybe we can start with uh, Robert on CFIUS and, um, and,
1: uh, and how it meets that sort of delicate balance. Well, Craig is far more knowledgeable about this than I am. CFIUS, of course, does most of its work uh, in secret and the criteria that it uses for its work have been shifting a lot over recent years. I don't know whether we've heard anything about how the Biden administration plans to look at this or not. Certainly recently it's aired on the side uh, of saying no to everything, whereas I think it used to be that there was an assumption that, that these applications were worthwhile projects. That assumption shifted during the Trump administration where it is now, I don't know, Craig, if we know anything about that under Biden. But so you would know that Chinese
2: I. investment in the United States has declined precipitously, some 90% from 2017 to 2019. Um, I, I don't think that the 2020 figures are in yet, but uh, no, nothing has changed. And as a result of that, uh, American, uh, Americans employed by Chinese companies have also declined. Um, some 30,000, uh, Americans, uh, fewer are, uh, currently employed by Chinese companies than, uh, in 2017. Um, in my view, uh, that's very unfortunate, uh, particularly, uh, if, uh, that Chinese investment, uh, had been directed towards the economically deprived parts of the United States, as much of it had been. Um, so, uh, uh the CFIUS program I- is uh, designed uh, around export controls to protect American national security interests, but it has been applied much more broadly. Uh, and I think that um, uh, tailoring it to industries where there are real national security concerns, particularly in high tech, uh, makes a lot of sense. CFIUS and FIRMA are necessary. Uh, however, applying that to a yarn factory in Arkansas or a fish factory a uh, fish processing facility on the Ohio River uh, 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 doesn 't make sense uh, doesn 't make economic sense and hurts uh, American working families. Um, so I think a recalibration here would be very welcome um, and uh, is urgently uh, needed. Um, The United States has a large trade deficit with China. Uh, Traditionally, the way to address a large trade deficit would be to welcome foreign direct investment in the industries uh, that had been exporting to the U.S. If we close that off, uh, then we condemn ourselves to a long-term structural imbalance with the Chinese that none of us want.
0: Yeah, makes sense. And so, I mean, I think definitely a theme of our conversation is just a need to, you know, sort of understand the nuances. And it sounds like in a number of different, you know, areas from, you know, potentially CFIUS to, you know, various academic areas that those it's sort of ongoing the understanding of that, and hopefully those will be uh, clarified uh, soon, so that we can actually uh, engage on, on them in in the Biden administration. I'd love to turn a little bit to. You know, some, some more positive, uh, you know, we've hit some positive things, but mostly it's been in the areas of, you know, restrictions or where we can sort of, you know, be better in our, in our relations. Uh, you know, there's a number of areas where it's been discussed that the U.S. and China should really collaborate. Uh, you know, there's really very strong shared interest. I mean, this could, you know, climate you know, environment issues, potentially around like food security policy, things like that. I'd love to hear, and maybe we'll also start with you again, Robert. You know, what are some of the areas that, you know, we could have some quick wins and really, you know, work together
1: in a productive way with China? Well, I think that the list has become sort of Lao Sheng Chang Khan. It's almost become a, a, a cliche yeah. list. There's an awful lot of talk about working together on climate change. Although a lot of that togetherness is largely symbolic in international forest light, uh, forum, like the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. Right. Uh, the Chinese have tended to look at this uh, in terms of actual policies and reduction in emitted, in emitted hydrocarbons as you know, good on good. You do the best you can do. I'll do the best I can do. If everyone does the best they can do country by country, that's the best we can get. Where is the detailed technical collaboration in that area? There may be some prospects for that, but it hasn't been described. This has become a little bit of a throwaway line. Of course we can collaborate. I think you mentioned food safety. I think that the issue of safety generally, before all the talk of decoupling, uh, food safety, biopharmaceutical safety, consumer product safety, something of extremely high concern around the world that there are actually detailed technical ways to collaborate more closely on is a major area. Uh, the pandemic side, uh, in theory, yes, but we're a long way uh, from true collaboration in in this region. Uh, but certainly, we need to start talking to each other. China is not yet willing to get involved in arms control talks. Okay, we understand their position. You know, We have a much bigger arsenal. China's view has always been, you reduce down to our level, and then we can talk. But there can be other kinds of talks about safety and non-proliferation, as well as sort of proto arms control talks that can start now and that are in our, our, in our joint interest. One of the questions about that, and recently Chinese leaders have, have spoken to this in a discouraging way, um, is whether China is going to, as a matter of its political culture, can it cooperate with us in some areas uh, where we're really competing in a distrustful confrontational non-win-win way in other regions. This is something that I think we're historically a little bit better at, putting these things in boxes. China likes people to either be friends or something else, but they don't like the simultaneous, you know, pat on the back, knife in the ribs. That just doesn't sit well. And so a couple of, you know, their leaders recently have said, of course, if we're going to cooperate, this would entail your silence about Xinjiang, about Hong Kong. And that is simply not going to happen. So Are there prospects? Are there needs to to cooperate? Yes. Um, Can China do it? Uh, We don't know. They have done it in the past, despite their rhetoric now about not being able to separate these different areas. They've in fact done it regularly. It's never set well, but that's a big question for them. We're we're mostly focusing in this discussion, rightly so, on our views and what we may be able to do and how we should uh, measure the challenge from China, how we should frame threats of course, there's a mirror Mirror questions on the other side. Uh, there are real threats. There are real challenges. China itself, you know, you asked about training young sinologists. China has made it much harder to have a career in China uh, in a number of ways. It relates to their visa policies and their hiring policies. So there's a, there's a mirror discussion to be had on the other side of all this.
0: Yeah, good good point. Uh, I don't know, Craig, if you had anything else to add on that,
2: I I regret uh, that we've kind of lost our muscle memory on uh, cooperation because there's so much potentially where we could cooperate on the academic side where the the Chinese should open up their archives and and welcome uh, American researchers. Certainly the story in the media is very sad uh, going both ways. Uh, And that is an area that I would be hopeful that there could be further collaboration um, visas, uh, in general have become very difficult going both ways. Uh, and without, uh, a little bit more of a liberal visa policy, it's, it's going to be hard to get, uh, nearly anything done on the Chinese side. Um, their crackdown on NGOs, uh, has not helped, uh, at all, uh, vis-a-vis, uh, collaboration. Right. And this is creating a, a climate of distrust and uh, an inability uh, to uh, get things done. Um, one example would be labor inspectors. Um, the Chinese should open up the whole country uh, to uh, for labor inspections uh, so that companies can buy uh, from where they need to. The degree of, uh, the degree of um, uh, supervision uh, over companies and, and this type of inspection over routine commercial activities is, uh, it makes, makes collaboration very difficult. And particularly as we go into uh, uh, a Winter Olympics, uh, if we're to have a normal Winter Olympics, we're, we need a l- lot more openness and, uh, and ability to, uh, for civil society to move back and forth. And right now, that's just highly uh, circumscribed uh, and something to be, that should be addressed as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I was actually actually asked that question to have it be you know a little more optimistic about here are things that we can work on. But I think you highlighting some of these tensions are really important. and it makes you makes it hard sometimes to actually argue the case that we should engage more when there is a lot of these you know sort of yeah crackdowns on NGOs, crackdowns on journalists, you know restrictive visas, uh, and the variety of other things that, that that are occurring. It makes it yeah makes it hard actually from from the U.S. side to to effectively engage. Uh, I have a question, we have a couple questions in the q and I wanna make sure we try to get to. So there's a question about uh, the US and Taiwan and one, asking about you know, the future of that relationship under the Biden administration. Do, do either of you have any um, thoughts on that? Go ahead.
1: Well, I think it was important that the Biden administration came out and said that we are going to continue to operate under the one China policy. Uh, of course, there's flexi- there are flexible interpretations of the one China policy uh, and the Biden administration has also made clear that they will continue to look for certain kinds of international space uh, for Taiwan. But I think that we will be seeing less of the provocations for provocation sake, uh, back and forth high level visits uh, designed not necessarily to advance an agenda but to, to have China see that we'll do it. Um, I hope that there will be no further talk of uh, military other, you know, ship visits to Taiwan, the Chinese have been very clear uh, that the day an American destroyer goes into the Taiwanese port of Kaohsiung, that's the day that uh, missiles fly. And I think we need to bear in mind, um, a colleague of both Craig and my uh, ambassador, Stapleton Roy makes this point a lot, uh, that if you look back at the history of three-way relations since 1979, cross-strait relations have worked out best for the people of Taiwan when mainland China was confident about its relationship with the United States. That's a very important part of the historical record. Uh, And so I think that our our watchword for now should be not backing off of the sense that China is a strategic competitor, because it is, Uh, but we can aim for stabilization and less unpredictability in every sphere, and especially in the area of Taiwan, Uh, Which is now more dangerous than it's been in decades, and I think that we bear well, we do well to keep Ambassador Roy's historical observation in mind as we do that.
0: Yeah, uh, we're close to time, and there's a couple questions on one of the things that I actually found to be one of the more interesting aspects of our conversation. You know, Robert's point that that actually the, the the era of where you know sort of diversity and openness and inclusion. Uh, you know leads to you know really effective innovation, et cetera um, you know might be might be over might be a strong way to put it, but you know the this era we 're in now where China can do things with scale uh, with speed provides a whole other way of that sort of logic of you know organizing uh innovation and a couple you know the questions asking you know how can the rest of the world compete against the scale and speed um, uh, model do you, do either of you have any ideas about you know, we can work work multilaterally or the EU can work or the US can work. What, what sort of things can actually combat that, um, you know, that model?
2: I think that the Chinese model is indeed very formidable um, and uh, they have uh, world beating uh, companies and particularly innovation coming out of Shenzhen is uh, extraordinary. Um, At the same time um, uh, as was in the case of Japan uh, 25 years ago, um, the Chinese uh, do lack uh, the diversity that American and European firms um, uh, enjoy. Uh, Further, uh, there is a uh, tendency to focus domestically on, on the Chinese domestic market Uh, rather than a a global market. Um, And so the US uh, and uh, together with European and Japanese companies who are inherently diverse, inherently global, who who have been doing this for a long time have formidable uh, competitive uh, capabilities. Whereas Chinese companies have formidable um, uh, handicaps uh, and a lack of experience uh, that they're facing. So we mustn't pretend uh, that uh, we can't uh, uh, that, that the Chinese are ten foot tall uh, and uh, they put on their trousers both both uh, legs at a time. Uh, quite the contrary. Right. And uh, as we move forward, um, there's also a rethink within China, a growing um, uh, interest in antitrust, a growing interest in uh, party control uh, over technology and over companies a growing uh, um, uh, desire for uh, more technology under government supervision. And that is not something that the rest of the world uh, uh, wants uh, and is uh, certainly violative of the original spirit of the internet, which uh, is clearly um, welcome uh, in many other countries uh, around the world. So we uh, ha- definitely have two uh, innovation models that are competing with each other. Yep. And it'll be incredibly interesting uh, to see uh, which one proves dominant in which industries.
0: Great. Thanks. Robert, this was your point initially. What, what are your thoughts on this? We're just My about thought is that.
1: that Ambassador Allen has given us an excellent answer. I think that's exactly the way to think about it.
0: Excellent. Well, I just want to take a second to, to, you know, thank you both. I mean, I've learned a lot and actually I'm feeling pretty excited about the next number of years to be, you know, here, you know, watching as things continue to develop hopefully in a positive way, you know, having both of you involved in helping, you know, set agendas, talk to talk to leaders, you know, really push this a, a theme that I got was this idea that You know, we just need to really, you know, dig in in a much more nuanced way to understand, you know, what actually might be a threat, what actually might be an economic opportunity. And so I just want to thank you both for joining us uh, today and yeah, just very much appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining in. Really enjoyed the discussion.
2: Thank you, Chris. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Kuo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.